All right, friends, welcome back to the show. It is my honor to have back on the podcast for the second time, Dr. Esau McCauley. How are you, man? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. You are probably one of two people, maybe three people, who actually did a podcast about my dissertation um, and not reading my black. So you skipped reading my black, um, you did my dissertation, and now you're back for what I'm working on now. <laughs> I don't, don't, don't make it sound like I don't want to talk about reading while black like that. I, like it, it sounds like I'm anti reading while black. That's not the point, but, uh, I'm glad I, I'm tired I, of talking about it. So, I mean, sorry. Okay. You well, are still thinking about buying it. You can buy it and God bless you, but I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad to talk about something else. That book came out in 2020. My goodness. This is year three for it. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm, I, I was, I was just like, I got the re- request. And I was like, man, Luke, I remember him. He he yeah. asked about my, my dissertation, which is very rare. So thank you for, for showing he, like, my I, I, scholarship. See, I'm the guy who was with you before the hit song, right? I was there before you got big. Like I was, I, I'm here before New York Times. Like before you're writing, is that, you write New York Times now, don't yeah, you? Yeah, that is chronologically but, yeah. true. But. I, I'm, I'm, I'm early. Like I'm, I'm early adopter. I'm pro Esau from the beginning. So ride or die. Like I'm. I'm in pro Esau camp, oh, so I, I'm going to ignore the ride, uh, <laughs> reading while black shade, yeah. and I'm going to just buy into the fact that I'm original. Like, I'm go. here for it you. Was, it wasn't shade. It was just actually yeah. I was giving you a compliment. <laughs> it, was, it was real, genuine love. No one cares about my decision. Yeah, yeah. But me and my advisor, yeah. TNT Clark. And? And, and 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 you, Luke. And Luke. Yes. Yeah, that's that's what I want to say. Let's and let's Luke. get there. Uh, so you, a lot has changed. You moved uh, to Wheaton, where you've been for a couple of years now, and uh, and you've you're is it like a columnist now? Is like that the official title? What is it? What is it? Contributor? What, what what is it called? Hold on, contributing opinion writer. So I, I usually write about once per month. Um, so it's like a mm-hmm. monthly column instead of. A lot of the regular columnists write multiple times per week. Some write once a week, some write twice a week. I write once per month. Yeah, right on. So I'm, okay, I'm, so I'm not I a regular would... columnist. I'm in a, a contributing okay. opinion writer, which means, like I said, I do um, 10 to 12, maybe 13 to 14 articles a year. Right on. So I went to uh, a Church of Christ school in West Texas called Abilene Christian. When I was there, it was a Division two school in sports. Yeah. And we had one guy who got picked in the second round of the NFL draft. He transferred from Nebraska, played in the league for like eight years. His name Daniel Manning. But like to have someone from our school make it to the league, it was a big deal. It's like, hey, that's our guy. He's doing big things. We're all cheering for him. And so like when I see it, it's like, I knew him from the beginning. And I'm like, I'm cheering for you now. Now you're writing the New York Times. Like, congrats, man. I'm, I'm celebrating with you from, from afar. I appreciate it. I hope now, that what I write is useful to somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I saw that um, David French recently got uh, yeah. a deal with them as well. Yeah. So are you guys like in a, a group text now, like your best friends no, because I, of I that? Do you guys it, get like a, a watch people, or something? People have a distorted opinion um, as to how the, the New York Times is a very, very big organization. Um, yeah. And so he is actually in a different ca- – he's a columnist. Okay. And so um, I don't work in New York. You know, I yeah. <laughs> I work here at Wheaton College. I have no idea where David French lives. So um, he'll be work, he'll be writing as a columnist, and he'll have he'll work with whoever he works with at time at the times. But we don't work for the same. We don't work with the same editors in the, in the same in the same exact sure. way in that way. And he does politics. Um, I think yeah. I don't know. Um, I'm not. I, I don't. Yeah, that's, God bless that's David. His line. I, I, think, I think that David is going to do. Um, mostly politics, 
and I do mm-hmm. um, race, culture, and religion. And so um, that's that's how I understand it. So my yeah. my so, stuff is mostly um, like like culture, often African American um, spirituality, black church stuff. So we're doing a little bit different things. Yeah, yeah, different He's a writer, things. And um, I met him. I met him um, at an event with, that we both were were speaking at a, a couple of years ago. Gotcha, gotcha. What's it like as the attitude has shifted? Maybe I should ask it this way. Uh, I'm 41. You're a couple of years younger than me. Are, no, we're I'm around the same age, aren't we? I'm 43. I'm 43. Oh, you're 43. Oh, okay. Well, you're doing good. Good, good stuff, man. Uh, okay. So when you and I were probably 20, the mm-hmm. attitude for a major publication like the New York Times was one thing. What it is now, it seems like uh, people have a different, not about the New York Times specifically, or maybe also them specifically, but like, it seems like attitudes towards major publications has shifted and become more polarized. Do you sense that is your reality as well? Or do you think I'm just projecting uh, a smaller opinion about that? Cause it seems like people engage with, uh, quote unquote, like the media in a different way. I, Does make say, sense? I was not, I was not reading a bunch of newspapers when I was in my twenties. So maybe you're just a better person than I was. Um, when I was 21, I was a junior and I was in high, I was in college, man. I was just trying to trying to graduate. I would say that, and I'm just being honest, I wasn't being flippant. I was just like, I can tell you <laughs> what people thought about the New York Times oh. 20 years ago. Um, I would yeah. say that um, we live in a time of the democ- democratization of knowledge. And yeah. people, not just information and people are more accessible to each other. And mm-hmm. so we, just bump up, we bump up against one another um, a lot more than we used to. And so that kind of public access to each other's and each other's opinions mm-hmm. um, both encourages and reveals the the the, um, the divisions that we have in society. So in other words, a lot of the times, if you had a bad opinion about somebody, you probably just called your friend and said, did you see that article? I hated it. Or you yeah, talk yeah. to your friends, you know, in the neighborhood or at the park. And the only way for someone else to know about it is if you literally sat down and like wrote a letter and sent it to the editor, and if the editor decided to publish it. Yeah. People would know. But now you can just like hit tweet and your summary that goes above it. I hate this, and so it's very very easy for everyone to get yeah. access to everyone's opinions. And so I think that it at the end, I noticed just as a writer, and I have to do this as, in my own kind of public life. If I share a complaint about something, you know, um, I tend to get a lot more feedback than if I say something, um, you know, uh, positive. So for example, I'm a sports fan. Um, I love LeBron James. So if I say something about Mm -hmm. LeBron James, people are, if I just say them positive, people might not get excited about it. They might yell MJ is better. But if I say (laughs) LeBron James is better than Michael Jordan. Oh man, you would think that I just denied the Trinity. <laughs> and you see people. Well, you live in Chicago now. You can't say that where you live. I mean, come on, man. I know. And see, I, even even to use it as an example, I'm probably going to get some shade for this video. And yeah. so, what I'm saying is, it's also the case that negativity drives attention. And so, I think that mm-hmm. we're seeing a the 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 algorithm and the um, social media has unveiled something about human nature, which we have a tendency towards destructive habits and it's, it's accentuated that. And so I think that's what you probably are seeing when you're talking about the increased polarization. 
Yeah. Okay. Two things. First of all, I am with you in the LeBron's the goat position. So I'm, uh, again, I'm, I'm right behind you supporting that, that, that same parade that you're, you're pushing okay. forward. Uh, second, I, I referenced the origin of the New York times, which I think was like in 1851 yeah. where, uh, Henry Raymond and what's his name? Tom Jones started this penny paper. Yeah. I think that's the story. And I tell, I t- use as an illustration, uh, l- uh, last Sunday in a sermon. And I, as I do it, I, I see people's mixed response of just saying, like I tell the story and they say, and that paper today is the New York times. And I was trying to say it started small and now it has a great deal of, you know, yeah. you know, reached a lot of people. But I, I saw like almost on faces of people going, Oh great. That's really wonderful. Oh, I don't trust those people. Right. Like, you know, just like, that, yeah, I, th- I think th- that, I think that truth is truth wherever you find it. And yeah. We are in a time of ideological filtering. And there are people who have suspicions and people who lack those kinds of suspicions. Um, yeah, and I, that's how, I mean, it's just, I think that one of the most courageous things that we can do in our current moment is um, take ideas as they come. Um, and if we believe something like all truth is God's truth, it's true no matter who says it. And we live first where we do, does this company or does this um, organization or whoever it is, does it represent my ideological camp? And if Mm -hmm. it was my ideological camp, I support them even if their arguments are bad. Because I I, I, I don't think that, um, I don't think the issues that divide us are so complex that no one, like there's, there's these, Fortitudes of um, uh, of ideological like nuance and nobody can penetrate it. Just, it just camps, and we find yeah. ourselves defending the undefendable because our side says so. Yeah, yep, yeah. Where it's less about the truth of the statement, the veracity of the claim, and it's more about my identity in the group. Yeah, yeah. I tell my kids yeah. all of the time that. Um, it is often not intellectual. I'm not, I'm not saying that they're not intellectual problems. I'm not laying them down. Or often might be the wrong word. But sometimes, I use the word sometimes. Sometimes sure. it's just emotion. Like it's, it's, it's an emotional mm-hmm. feeling that Christianity feels like it's bad. And actually, like it's an inarticulate energy that students sometimes have. And that can sometimes just be, and you just want to feel like, I want to be on the side of people who are good. And people say the Christians are the bad guys, so I want to be with the good guys. And so I think that, like, we do live in a time of just, it's, it's really hard to take a step back and, and ask yourself, what is genuinely true? What is generally true? Hmm. What is actually happening on, going on around me? Not what do I want to believe to be ideologically consistent, but what's actually true? Um, and one of the things that was like, truth is actually knowable. You can, you can, you can hunt it down, but you'd have to be vigorous in your pursuit of it. Wow. How, how, how would you get someone who's saying like, okay, I feel like I might have gotten kind of stuck where I'm not vigorously searching down truth, but it's just like, there's a side I want to be on. This makes sense to me. And I think there's enough, uh, work from the world of psychology to talk about that. We are, uh, driven. I think this is Locke who talks about how we're driven by pa- the passions more than reason. And so we, uh, it, Jonathan hates book. Um, 
uh, it's in happiness hypothesis where he talks about like this idea of the, uh, the elephant and the rider, right? Like where the passion is this elephant that we're on and, and the rider is the intellect trying to rationalize the decisions that our passions already making us follow. Like if we're trying to step outside of that predisposition or I don't know if it's predisposition or just a, uh, a, a way of living we've lived in too for too long. Like h- how would you help us try to like bifurcate ourselves from maybe a inarticulate way of gathering information? Yeah, I would say that like the truth is we've all of us have changed our minds against our better judgment. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I don't think that our, that we're all completely driven by our passions. I've changed my mind. Um, mm-hmm. And I would also say that, first of all, like we're not disembodied human beings. Like God didn't just make a bunch of minds. He gave us bodies, minds, and emotions. And so emotions aren't bad. And, 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 and the emotion um, is a part of it. One of the things that I say to people is what makes me Christian is that, yes, Christianity makes sense. But this is, there's, there's an aesthetic beauty to the story of Christianity and who Jesus is and what he's done. And I'm compelled by the beauty of Christianity, the, the way that it, it touches on my emotions. right? And so there, there's this passage, and forgive me, I've not looked at the Greek or whatever, so if I'm wrong about this, just give me a pass. There is um, a, a, a passage in Hebrews where it says, it is fitting that the author of our salvation should be made obedience through suffering. Right? And the language they're fitting has always struck me as interesting. I'm not looked it up in, in, in the original language. But what he doesn't actually do is what some Christians do is deductive reasoning, right? Jesus had to die for our sins because of this inescapable s- series of, of deductive claims. And Christianity makes mm-hmm. that case. Paul makes the case in other places about why Jesus' death was necessary. But there is something I find um, emotionally compelling about what they say in the gospel of, in, in the book of Hebrews we said it's fitting, right? There's something when you say, when I look at what Jesus did for me, there's something about that that, that kind of touches the ache in the human heart in a way that is, is feet, that feels right. And so I don't think that, yeah. that Christian, Christianity, you have to decide between the emotions and the intellect, but that, that, that God reaches in and grabs us in both places. Now, as to how you change hmm. your mind, it is to me... Most of us, just by, by virtue of our own pride and ego, want to hold to opinions we've always held. But there's this yeah. place where, to me, the cognitive dissonance between what I believe or what I'm predisposed to believe and the evidence that outweighs it um, causes me to change my mind. And so I don't know if there's a magical way of accomplishing that. I would just say that, that, that I've had in my own, in my own life the possibility that God has told me things that um, I didn't already know. And if you're going to be a Christian, I think it's kind of important, right? I think that what I say to my students is ask yourself, when was the last time God disagreed with you? And what I mean by that, Hmm. what I mean by that is either you've achieved perfect sanctification. It's your opinions, your politics, your economic policies, whatever, like your philosophies, all of this stuff are so perfectly in tune with the creator that you just got to live it out, right? That you got it all right, and your thoughts are God's thoughts. You just have a problem in actualization. Or you've created God in your image, yep. right? There's yep. something that you think God wants you to be doing that he doesn't actually want you to do. And so part of recognizing the fact that, you, that you're a fallible human being 
is recognizing the possibility that you're doing something, you're behaving in a way, you're pursuing something that may not be what God wants for you. And part of what it means to be a Christian is to be consistently open to the possibility that God can redirect you. And I think that if God never steps in from outside of us and direct us towards the path of flourishing, then what good is he? So in other words, yep. to, to be a Christian, to be a Christian is to acknowledge that you don't have all wisdom. It's to acknowledge that you need God's guidance to kind of point you in the direction that you should go. And so for me, it's not, um, it's how do I still this kind of out of control, uh, this, this, uns, this, this, this fast moving train that's our brains, this thing's hurtling from one thing to the next. How do I still myself so that I might be able to hear what God is saying? Not God, but what I want to do, but God, what would you have me do? It's a hard question to ask. And it's, and it's easy for us to assume that we know when oftentimes we don't. Okay, I think we're done. I mean, that question right there, when was the last time that uh, God and I disagreed? Like, that's that's our money's worth for today, and that's all I needed. Like, that's such a great question. Honestly, uh, that to, to make a segue here, uh, you wrote a book about Lynn. That's what we're going to get to in the conversation. As you make that question, uh, I'm going, man, that's a great question just to have as a centerpiece of of Lent, of going, what do I need to repent? What do I need to change up? What are ways in which God disagrees with me? How can I redirect myself back to the way of God? I mean, that's just a, a great question. I love it. That's a really, really great question. Sorry, um, you went out for a second. I just heard a great question, but now you're back. Sorry. <laughs> just just stick with that. I just said it was a great okay, question, sorry, and then I just went on for two minutes. Uh, no worries, no worries. Uh, no, I think it's just such a great question, and uh Oh, yeah, I, I love it. Um, well, one of the things the that's... Reason, uh, the, reason I, the reason I asked that question is because, and maybe this is not everybody's own, this is my own insecurities. Um, I tell my students every semester, because uh, you, you're catching me here, I don't know when this is going to air, but you catch me at the beginning of the semester, so this is on my mind. I say to them, it's my job to teach you um, these classes that you're going to take from me. But there's a problem. And, and I, I say this in every single class, that you have... Um, one of two choices as um, as a student to understand about the person who's teaching you. One is I'm a genius and I've unraveled the mysteries <laughs> of the universe and I've gotten everything right. And it's just your job to write down what I say and you could be a genius too. Or I've got some I've gotten something wrong. I'm inadequate in some way. But there's a problem because we all know that I'm not a genius. It's, it's option B. I've gotten something wrong. But the problem is, I don't know what it is. Because if I knew what it was, I would change it, right? <laughs> if I knew what I had wrong, it, yeah. I would adjust it. Hopefully, yeah. it'd be right. So I am actually walking around every day, probably wrong about something. I'm sure when I get to glory, God's not going to go, Esau, you nailed it. Everybody else had this part of theology wrong, but Esau, you got it all correct. And so I say to them, well, then part of my job as a professor is to be open to the possibility that I might be wrong and to ask you as students to be patient with me while I try to figure it out. And so if that's true, though, that I'm possibly wrong about something, then you can be possibly wrong about something. And if we're both possibly wrong and we don't even know what it is, then we can engage each other with charity. So when someone mm -hmm. expresses an opinion in class, they're not doing it because they're bad people. They're just wrong. And they're wrong like all of us are wrong. And so part mm -hmm. of what it means to be in this Christian community, learning together, striving towards holiness, 
is to go on a journey together so that we might discern where we've kind of gotten off track. And this kind of, this does transition into the book because Lent has a lot to do with like getting yourself back on track after you've kind of gone astray. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And the Lenten season has been very refreshing and and new to me. Uh, I know you grew up in the Baptist, the black Baptist tradition, which Lent didn't have uh, a big seat at the table, to say the least. (laughs) Any seat at all. Okay. I was trying to be charitable. I, you know, I've, I've, and I still am a part of the churches of Christ. And so our tradition also doesn't uh, typically or hasn't typically given much space for Lent as well. And I found this to be very uh, life-giving to me. And I know you came about it um, when you were in college, you were at uh, Suwannee, which uh, listeners of my podcast know the very first time I met your guy, Tom Wright, who you worked on your dissertation with, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I did a, an interview at your alma mater with him and the uh, first time I ever met him and it was like the only time I've ever dressed up for an interview in the podcast was there at your school. And so y- you go there as a Baptist kid at a Episcopal school, yeah. which I mean, there's, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance in that yeah. campus. Like it's, it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty fancy. And so you get introduced to this. What was your f- kind of experience as 18, 19, 20 year old young, young person trying to go, Oh wait, this is way different yeah. than what I'm used to. So, what did it feel the like? The interesting thing is, and I think that uh, in the book, what I'm trying to do is help people who are like me. We're yeah. skeptical of the entire enterprise. We're all like, you know, this is, you know, sorry, this is me speaking as like 19-year-old me, not 20-year-old me. This is all Catholicism, right? We just kind of go, this is yeah. all legalism. That's just how we dismiss things. I grew up in a context where we had, this, these were our like church holidays. Mother's Day, we had yeah. Christmas. Um, but in the black church, you have pastor's anniversary. And then you had, Go on about that. My church needs to hear about pastor, that. That sounds oh, like a good holiday. <laughs> y'all should learn from the black church. Pastor anniversary, like every year, this is the year where the person was installed. We get them presents. We throw a big party. It's like once a year. So it's like the anniversary of the year that you started is like a party. So you have that. And then you had... Um, Are there any jobs open? Because I feel like I want... I mean, that that sounds pretty you, nice. You, 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 you can put in an application. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> we, we'd have uh, we'd have been basically Easter. So I came in yeah. from a completely non-liturgical context. And when I first got into um, liturgical churches, it was just odd to me. There's like three or four different books. There's a prayer book. There's a hymnal. There's like, you know, the, the program that they give you. And so I thought of it as, um, as, as just empty ritual. And what happened over time, and, and I, like, I like to explain it. So what happened to me over time is I went through my first Lent. So I was just on campus. And yeah. I had a car, I had a beat up car, Delta 88. My Delta 88 was messed up, so I couldn't drive to Alabama. My school is an hour from mm-hmm. my hometown, so I couldn't drive to my hometown on Sunday anymore to go to church. So I then went to the university chapel on campus. And so over time, doing the same rituals over and over again, began to have this positive form of impact. I, oh, this isn't so bad. And so then they had this thing called Lent. I said, what's Lent? <laughs> and they told me about it. You know, it's these um, this season of 40 days of preparation. And it was something about um, those 40 days of um, Lent where I am, and this is something I've never done before, preparing to celebrate something. Lent is the preparation for the celebration of Easter. 40 days where you get ready to have a party. And so something about the 40 days of reflecting upon um, where I was in my life with Christ 
and um, like what the resurrection actually meant had a tremendous impact on me. And there's like two, one of which isn't even the book, but there's um, two of them, the two things that I can talk about that are really, really powerful to me. The first one was what is called Monday Thursday. Mm-hmm. Monday Thursday is for you non-liturgical people, which is me for most of my life, is um, the Thursday where Jesus gives the Last Supper and where the mm-hmm. washing of the saints, washing of the feet of the saints before he goes off and he's betrayed. And in the mm-hmm. liturgy of Monday Thursday, you go through the entire service, you reenact the washing of the feet, and then they have this thing called the stripping of the altars. It sounds yep. crazy, but just follow me. Those of you who've never been there, don't yell papism and run off just yet. <laughs> so in the stripping of the altars, what they do is there's normally if you go into the church of churches, it's really fancy um, on the altar. There's flowers and there's candles and there's pot, all of the beautiful. Stuff. Yeah. And so what they do on Thursday before fr- Good Friday is they strip it all away. They take everything off and there's nothing on the altar except for the cross. And mm-hmm. then, and this is the part I didn't know, because if you were just like, you Church of Christ, you didn't know. In the back, they nah. tell you when to go home. They say, service is over, go home. Get out. So yeah. Yeah, on yeah. Monday, Thursday, there's no dismissal. So I didn't know. No. I'm waiting for someone to tell me to go home. So I'm sitting there on Monday, cra- Thursday. The altars are stripped. And I just, I sit, I, I, I never forget the first day. And I, I get on my knees and I pray. And I, and I, and I look up and the place is empty. And people have gone. And I'm like, oh, snap. We're the disciples. <laughs> we have yeah. abandoned Jesus Man. when he needed us most. And what I saw yeah. about the liturgy, especially the liturgy of Holy Week, and this is the important part of the whole thing, it allowed me to inhabit the story of Jesus in a way that I never had before. The next day, mm-hmm. um, they actually re- they had this thing called Good Friday. And this is going to freak some people out, but you invited me on the podcast, Luke. Yeah, hold on. Let's let me talk about Monday right. Thursday before you get to Good Friday. Yeah. Okay, across the street there's an Episcopal church that we become very good friends yeah. with, and so uh, they actually once we uh, they had a big ordination service at our building because we have the seating capacity, yeah. and so like it was a huge deal. Uh, a presiding Bishop Curry came in for, and it was just like thousands of y- y'all's people up in here. It was just <laughs> it was amazing, yeah. and so I got this uh, honorary Episcopalian oh. uh, Book of Common Prayer. So like I'm I'm kind of like a, a visitor, and so that? I actually Is your name on that at the bottom. Yeah, yeah, check that out, man. That's like that's legit. Oh, okay. I know it's kind of backwards there, but uh, I, I got to uh, to give the you uh, the eulogy the homily yeah. at uh, Monday Thursday a couple years ago, and so I got to participate, and I had the exact same experience yeah. where one the foot washing. I mean, that's you know that's pretty like you know some people need to wash their feet before they yeah. get there, just out of respect for the pastor, but. Yeah, rookie move. If you don't, if you wear sandals, like you need Jesus, seriously. Um, But the same experience, like afterwards, like it all goes dark, everything's stripped away. And that really had an impact the same way you described that. That was my experience the first time I participated as well. And so um, what I was going to say about Good Friday is, and this is, so in in 20, they they do everything intensely. They don't mess around. Oh, yeah. They actually had the, they had this thing called the Stasis of the Cross, where you you remember the different places where Jesus kind of the journey to Golgotha. They actually had an actual cross, a big old cross that the crowd kind of carried along and they would stop and have these readings um, from the Bible about what, you know, about the the passion. And I was like, Oh snap, this is really. and, and, And so what I wanted to say is, and it's not just these, these vivid things. I had read about the stories my entire life and I've been shaped by those stories, 
But there's something about the liturgy that allowed me to inhabit the stories. And Mm -hmm. what I wanted to do in the book is show how the practices of Lent, they aren't necessary. They aren't works that are designed to gain you some kind of favor with God. In the book, I often deal with some of the fears that we often have as low church Christians, but I show how, Lent in the in the rituals and the habits and the things are I just like to collect the wisdom of the church. Yeah. And I said this is the way in which we prepare to celebrate Easter. This is the way in which we thought about our lives before God. And these rituals and events and practices open you up to the Holy Spirit doing his work in your life. They're, the it's not the things themselves, it's what the things themselves give you access to. So when me and you both were in Monday Thursday, like there was nothing magic about the service. It just opened us up to the presence mm. of God. Yeah. I, I feel like I often just use the language of, and it, it might be reductionistic, but just to say, this is a spiritual discipline that the church has upheld for years as being very meaningful. And so when we do Ash Wednesday, uh, the first time we did, we actually had the rector come across the street and do it like a, a brief tutorial for us low church people. <laughs> hey, this is what's happening. Nothing's crazy. And now there's a lot of people that really buy into yeah. it. Um, but uh, up front, I always say the same thing about that. Hey, this is spiritual discipline that the church has done. This isn't something that's you have to do to earn favor with God. So I, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down as yeah. a, like, that's an issue you need to address for us low church yeah. people. We've never done a Good Friday service, like uh, a Stations of the Cross yeah. service. Could you help me articulate why it would be a value add for our people to participate in a Stations of the Cross uh, service, as you just described. Man, I feel like Stations of the Cross is like Liturgy 501. So this might be a bridge too far for some people. Uh, Is it too much? So the way, okay, so the Stations of the Cross historically are 14 stations representing the steps that Jesus made along the road to to, to Golgotha. Now, the interesting mm-hmm. thing is if you go into and actually, you actually look at a station of the so you will stop and you have a reading from the Bible and you'll stop and you have a prayer and a song and it kind of goes around and climaxing in, in the in the crucifixion. The thing that makes the station of the cross complicated and so I like to warn like this is a double warning for my low church friends. <laughs> some of it is our events in the Bible and some of them are pious legends. So you, mm-hmm. I think, depending on the one that you find, you know, I don't know if you know the story about Veronica and the Shroud of Turin. Like he falls and he and she wipes her. You know that that. Fame. So there's a there's an account of that in the Stations of the Cross, depending which one you find. Now, some people say, well, that that's not in the Bible, and I was like, you're right, it's not in the Bible. Might not be true, but what that those kinds of things do is that it helps you understand there was a lot more going on in the actual scene of the crucifixion than what we know about. So even if that event didn't occur, Jesus Mm -hmm. actually walked down a road and then he was placed on the cross. And so Mm -hmm. what those, what that, what those aspects of the stations of the cross do, it doesn't necessarily give me more information about what actually happened. They open Mm -hmm. up my imagination to prayerfully enter into that particular event. And so, when I say it's five oh it's five oh one, it's not because the the service itself is complicated. It's that every scene recounted in that service is can't be historically verified. And that doesn't bother yeah. me because it helps me to really think about not in a not in a way to preach, but in a way to improve my devotional life. What was it actually like to see Jesus walk by? Mm-hmm. Like what did it actually look like? when you were sitting there 
and you watch Jesus walk by you? Hmm. What does it mean to be on that road? And so I would say that like that is a little bit, you know, that might be a question that people might, they have to get over a lot of fears before they can kind of do that kind of imaginative spirituality. And and I don't think it's bad. Yeah. I'm just saying those are some concerns people sometimes have about that particular service. Yeah, no, that's helpful. But as you're describing, it's a way to prepare yourself. It's a way yeah. to visualize what's happening. It's a way to imagine Jesus did go down a road. There, there's a very human element that sometimes get disembodied yeah. in this actual story. Yes. And so one of the central themes, as, as I understood your book, of what Lint is trying to do is, and here's a quote, the church presumes that life is long and zeal fades. Yeah. Not just for some of us, but all. So it has included within its season, within its within its life, a season in which all of us can recapture our love for God. And so Lynn is a season sometimes for people who are preparing to get baptized, some for those who need to like return to church, and for all of us who need to repent and turn back uh, from sin. How, how does Lynn accomplish See, that? I'm glad you win the gold star of finding like a good central um, sentence that gets to the part of the book. See, I told you, I, again, I'm here from the beginning, man. I'm, I'm Team Esau. You, you, get, you get a t-shirt. Um, yes. What I was going to say is we can look at Lent as here's some things that I need to do to get on God's good side. And mm-hmm. it can feel like legalism. I need to fast and pray. And I was like, well, no, no, no. There's mm-hmm. actually grace at the heart of Lent. In other words, mm-hmm. Lent presumes, like I just said, you're going to mess up. That you're not going to get baptized and True. sprint towards Jesus your whole life until you get the glory. It says literally every year you probably messed up in something that you've kind of wandered Mm -hmm. away from the faith or some aspect of Christian life. And so it's okay. It's okay. We all mess up. So Mm -hmm. it's not just at this point of the year, but in particular at this point of the year, we can stop and ask ourselves, how can we begin again? And I've never, and maybe this is just like, maybe I'm just not sufficiently sanctified. I've never gotten to Lent and said, you know what? My spiritual life is basically perfect. I pray enough. I read my Bible enough. I'm kind to my neighbors. I'm kind to my wife. I'm kind to my kids. I'm the perfect teacher. You know, I'm, I, I, I'm perfectly manifesting all the fruits of the spirit. I can skip this Lent. <laughs> Never happened yeah. to me in 20 years. It hasn't happened to me either. No. There's always something. And so Lent invites you to do something that we don't often like to do, which is to be introspective about our spiritual life. Life is really busy. There's so many things that are going on that are competing for our time and our attention. And we just don't often have time to sit back and say, where am I? One of the things, sorry, I don't want to talk to you all like I talk to my students. But I say to them, because they're 18 and 22, and they're always focused on what they're going to be. Like, you know, by the time I'm 30, I want this job. I don't want to be married. I want whatever it is. And it's good to have goals. But if you ask an 18 to 22-year-old their goals, they're almost always vocational or relational. Mm-hmm. They never actually character goals. Oh, wow. They never yeah. say, in 10 years, I want to be this kind of person. I might want to be married, but they don't want to say, you know what? In 10 years, I want to be more patient. And so Lent is one of those few times where we stop and say, how can I think about my past year and the ways in which I have not followed Jesus fully? And what are the things that I can begin to work on pursue him more faithfully and so mm-hmm. one of the and, and so it, 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 what it does is if it works 
is to reorient your goals. I mean, it's really, really hard to set spiritual goals. It's Why? Hard. Why is it so hard? I feel like we, we think that accomplishments are what matters. So if I, you know, I become a president of some company or if I get this house or if I get these things, we think that, that joy or happiness comes from tangible successes. Now, one of the things that, that you, you might know um, that, or, or I might know is that all of us have had goals, whatever they are in our careers, and we've reached those goals. But the joy for them are kind of fleeting, right? You have them. And, yeah. you, and I wrote one time in the New York Times article, you can't hug a goal. You know, you win some award and it feels good. But the next thing you know, you only feel that for like a day or so. I have no idea. Yeah. Like you might say, you know what? I want this many downloads on my podcast. And you finally get this. Like, yes, I finally did it. But then there's another milestone. And you can spend your whole life chasing, you know, that next thing. And, but, and so we have, even though we've captured a goal, experience the emptiness of that goal, we convince ourselves that the next goal is actually going to make us feel better. Mm-hmm. And we, even though we've had those past experiences, so we keep chasing the lie. And so I think it's really hard to step back and say, you know what? What really matters is the kind of person that I am before God. And hmm. how do I need to change myself? Not so how do I need to open myself up to the spirit to change me? Yeah, I might yeah, be the person good. that God created me to be because in sync with him is where my greatest joy to be found. So at bottom, yeah. goal chasing is a doubting that the goodness of God's pleasure will be sufficient for us. Oh, that's a good word. That's good. And so we see this as an opportunity when zeal wanes, when we realize that the goals that we have chased are not as central as character formation, and more importantly, intimacy and connection to God, discipleship to Jesus, that's front and center. And during this time, we we acknowledge and we confess that, man, we, we missed a point on that. And one of the things that our church, uh, I've had multiple people in our church ask about the litany of penitence, that it is connected in a really substantive way. Uh, you write about it briefly in the book. Why do you, you think that public confession is so meaningful to us? I feel like, I wish, sorry, this, I mean, you're going to give me talking about theology. It's one thing to say that you're biblical. It's another thing to actually be biblical. Okay. And what I mean by that is the Old Testament is a bit of a train wreck. As it relates to the character of the central, the character of the central figure, yeah. right? There's a bunch sure. of knuckleheads yeah. running around the Old Testament and the New Testament, as a matter of fact. There's a bunch of knuckleheads running around the Bible. But yeah, the yeah. Bible records the failures of its heroes, right? And so the star of the story is not any individual human character. The star mm-hmm. of the story is God and his graciousness. And the characters of the, uh, the Old Testament, were the writers were comfortable enough to articulate the, the sins of its heroes, trusting that we can handle that kind of thing. So we learn not to do them again. Mm-hmm. Paul says these things are written for your instruction. So the litany of penance, penitence, is a corporate confession. So the reason I say it's related to the Bible is this. If it's okay for the Bible to record its failures and assume that being honest about its failures, the, the failures of the characters aren't going to destroy the faith of people, then we can be honest about our failures 
and say, to be honest, the church is messed up in a bunch of ways. We've made mistakes. And we could say we're guilty. Not we're gu- we are a part of the community of people who fail. Yeah. And we participate in some of those failures ourselves. We may not be guilty of everything, but we're guilty of something. And it's okay. It's okay to say that you messed up. And I mm-hmm. think that what the, the litany of penitence does is that it humbles the, it humbles the church. Yeah. Because I get it. People say people only want to ter- tear the church down. They want to talk about the church's failures. And so in order to protect the church from its failures, we tend to do an internal PR. We focus only on the church's positive side. My church, sure. my church does these things well. And that's good. You should be proud of the good things Christianity has, has done and the churches have done. But the litany of penitence said, you know what? And because it's a corporate, we have done these things. Um, and and, and it, it's a way of just acknowledging. And one of the things that I love about it, and I, I wrote about this in the book, is that the, the litanies, not just the one in the 79 prayer book, in, in the prayer books, are old. And they kind of precede our modern culture wars. So the stuff that you confess in is just stuff that Christians have been confessing for generations. And so it's something about saying we're caught up in the kinds of things that Christians and human beings often do wrong. And these are things we mm-hmm. can battle against. That's really good because as I've gone through the linea penitence and there are things that seem that I can imagine some of my congregants going, oh, yeah, you're talking about the earth. Okay. Yeah. And now you're trying to do this left wing agenda. Yeah. And then it's, oh, I'm, you know, I've said this and it sounds like you're making a right wing. Yeah. Ag- and like, I feel that in the same way that I felt like, oh, you referenced New York Times. Yeah. Like it just, I just feel that yeah. kind of stuff. And, and, and so I would say, I mean, we won't get into the history of, of different litanies, but what I want to say is. Historically, Christians have talked about, like even in the past, stewardship over creation. In the past, before we get to modern cultural divisions, Christians talked about evil structures in society and oppression. In the past, before we got to modern debates, Christians talked about personal holiness. Um, And they put them all together in one big mix. And we pull these things apart. And mm-hmm. one of the things that, that well-written liturgies do is they, 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 they take us back to a path where Christians are fighting about different stuff. And so the things that we don't talk about, they have no compunction in talking about. So I, just, I think it's really important to um, allow the church to teach us and allow the church to allow us. It's okay. What I'm saying is like, read the Old Testament. It's okay not to do bad things, but to admit that you've done bad things. Because um, that's the only way to heal it. It's the only way to heal it. Yep. And it's like, yeah. and, and this is not, I know we're not talking, I want to talk about like this general habit that I see in the media. And you can ask any politician of any stripe. Sure. What have you done wrong? What mistake have you made? And most of them will say, no, no, no I've made any mistake. They, they, there's, there's a refusal to like acknowledge what you've done wrong because you were like, if I admit what I've done wrong, People are going to take that clip and use it against me. So they're afraid to put anything on tape. But the Bible puts it all on the tape. <laughs> the Bible just says, yeah. here's humanity's failure. And it's okay because God is gracious. And so I am more than willing to not try to tear down the church, but to confess the ways in which I as an individual and the community of which I'm part of have failed to fully be like Jesus. And we, we failed because we ain't Jesus. Yep. That's the reason why we messed yep. up. To you, sorry to yep. break my, That's I, real. You, you didn't broke down my grammar and, and got the southern <laughs> and then coming back out again. Oh, come on. There's nothing wrong with being in South. Let's do this. Um, 
Okay, one thing that you take a pivot on that's unique uh, from my perspective uh, is, you know, raise low church like me, you become high church, and now you're in the pro-confess to clergy camp. And not as though it's like the only way to confess in, but you have a section in the book where you talk about why uh, that has become a position that you see value in. Yeah. Help, help me understand, because again, you're going to initially go, well, that's just Catholic and I don't want to be like that as though like everything about Catholicism is wrong, which like seems to be a little bit reductionistic, but tell me how you got that because you you didn't get that in low church. You didn't get that like (laughs) how you grew up. I assume. Actually, I think that I did. So, did you really? So, Tell no, me more. Let me explain. And I think that everybody does. Okay. So let me explain. So once again, I have to make qualifications to both myself, former Baptist self, and current Baptist reality. Okay. You can confess your sins to God, and God will hear you, and you need no, you don't need to go to anyone for forgiveness. That's fine. Like, we all agree with that. Like, I'm a good Protestant. I don't believe that you have to go to one person to get your yeah. sins forgiven. That's not it. But I do say, what does it mean to be ordained? What does it mean to be ordained? Regardless of your tradition, regardless Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Church of Christ, it means that you went before somebody in the, some organization in the church, and the church as a whole says, we believe that God's hand is upon your life to help lead a congregation. That's what we, in some sense, Everybody who's ordained has that state of approval, which their their calling is not just an interior rec- recognition; it is it is recognized by someone external to themselves. Mm-hmm. So, when you then speak as an ordained person, you don't have magical powers, right? But you are speaking with the backing of the people who supported you for ordination. That's why you can preach every week, right? Mm-hmm. So you lead. We say this person should lead. So now, if I, have, if I have a spiritual issue, I can go straight to God. Sure. I can also go to my friend down the road. Sure. That's also true. But sometimes, and we all know it, there's issues, you know, my conscience isn't really clear. I've heard, I know this, but I kind of still, I need to know whether or not, I need to know. I need to talk to someone about it. Mm-hmm. And who do you go to? You go to the pastor. Why do you go to the pastor? Yeah. Not because the pastor has magic powers, because he's he or she has been elected by God to do that thing. And so you're saying when you when the pastor says you're forgiven, it's not that the power is increased. It's that the pastor speaking on behalf of the church. And sometimes you need the representative of the church to tell you that it's okay. And as a pastor, yeah. that's what pastoral care is. And, be, and, and can anybody say it? But you know what? Sometimes your, your random dude who, or lady who you meet at the church who tells you something will be dead wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and your pastor can be mm-hmm. wrong too, but they're wrong with the backing of a body. It, it, and yeah. so when I say it is important sometimes to go and talk to me, frozen. Can you hear me now? I'm almost back. Just kind of, you were just at the, like the last sentence. Yeah. So what I, what I was saying is, um, when I go to the pastor and I say to the pastor, I have this problem. And the pastor mm-hmm. says, you can be at peace. God forgives you. Pastor mm-hmm. speaking on behalf of the congregation as being elected yeah. to do that thing. 
So I do think mm-hmm. that there are certain times where our consciences are troubled and we need not the pastor, but the whole church to say to you, you are forgiven. And that's what pastoral care is. And so when yeah. I say that sometimes it's important for people to go and lay themselves, like to, to talk about things that bother them to their clergy, it's not because I am saying there's another special channel of forgiveness. I'm saying that sometimes you need that. Um, one of the, my kids, my wife is a doctor, and I'm not a doctor. So if the kids are sick, I can tell them it's going to be okay. But I'm just, I'm just, I'm just a dad who loves them. They go to mama, and they got to go, mom, yeah. you're a pediatrician. <laughs> Somebody somewhere put you in charge of deciding when kids are in trouble. So mom says they're going to be okay. Are we good? <laughs> and I think, I think that clergy yeah. play that same role. So I'm not, I'm, I am pro-confession in the sense that I think that, and, and, and one, one of the weird things about it is we do it all the time. Like we go to pastors for exactly this reason. And I just want to say that sometimes yeah. spiritual counseling is a part of that. And, and, and we need to consider doing that. Because I know people who just like live, they come to sem- they come they come to seminary. They come to my classroom. I've always wondered about this, and they wait to ask their professor. Ask your pastor. Yep. Yep. No, I I feel like that's a very compelling argument, and it makes a whole lot of sense. And I've seen that played out without the language you yeah. just used, because people are seeking that, and they want. Hey, oh, to the point. Yeah, I've had some funny conversations where like other people are sharing their opinion on one subject. And they're like, no, 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 Luke, what do you yeah. think? Because they're not thinking Luke specifically as though, but Luke has been the support of, a, you know, a, a seminary yeah. and then a church and all these things. So yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, we're running out of time here. So let me say one thing. Uh, when I first got introduced to Lynn, I was talking to a younger friend of mine who was Baptist. And this is back when I'm in seminary, just out of seminary. And uh, the guy's like, uh, okay, yeah, like you're fasting, you give up food, all this stuff. And he goes, well, Luke, you've kind of always been like, you always work out and like fitness has always been a part of it. This, Lent seems like it's just a sacred, like get in shape thing for you, Luke. And, and you reference that in the book, you have this line about where it can, it can be a, uh, like a sanctified getting in shape season yeah. because people are giving up certain food. Uh, I appreciate you writing that down so I can go, Hey, it, this is, this is not me. Like, this is just what the Lord wants you to do. So, you know, couch to 5k for the Lord. <laughs> I, I think, I think that, um, our bodies, um, when I talk about fasting, the, mm. the, the fact that it has a, a, a physical and a spiritual benefit is because God made us integrated beings, right? And sure. so we should not yeah. pursue only spiritual goods that have no physical good. But mm-hmm. we can, if we're not careful, use the spiritual as an excuse for the physical. And so what, yeah. when you're fasting, you are denying yourself as a way of saying that my body doesn't have the final control over me. I'm not ruled by yep. my desires and that I don't mm-hmm. accomplish things because of my strength, but because of my dependence upon God. And so what I wanted to say though, is, and this is the thing I made the point that I made in the book, fasting has a spiritual danger attached to it because it can be used in an improper way, but so cannot yes. fasting. <laughs> in other words, mm-hmm. I talked about yep. in the book, how people can say, well, we don't fast. We don't do those rituals like those legalists. And you can make a point of saying, I don't do any of that stuff. Well, the whole point of Jesus' own words is beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. And one way of practicing mm-hmm. your righteousness before other people is literally publicly not doing anything. <laughs> and so yep. 
it, it, yep. you can't you can't protect yourself from the possibility of judgmentalness. So in other words, a person yep. who fasts a lot can take pride in their fasting, and that can be a spiritual danger. But the person who doesn't can also look down upon their neighbor who is fasting and say, I'm better than them. And so you can't get out of spiritual danger by doing something or avoiding doing something. You have to do the hard work of actually saying, whether I'm fasting or not fasting, am I doing it to the glory of God? As a matter of fact, there's somebody who named Paul who says exactly this point. One person regards one day as sacred, the other one doesn't. But what matters is God is, is, is glorified in it. And that means not that I don't have to do anything, but that if I do mm-hmm. it, I do it to the glory of God. And that the rituals and the seasons and the habits of Lent are an opportunity to do these things to the glory of God. And what, the, and what I try to do in the book is, is, is really, it's saying, and I'm glad that you got the quote. But it's really saying, listen, y'all, I was low church too. And <laughs> this stuff terrified me. It's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. did, did, and, and not just that it's okay. If done with the right attitude, it can help improve your spiritual life. It's not the panacea. It doesn't solve all problems. I, I tell my students all of the time, beware of magic bullet Christianity. Where there's, mm-hmm. here's the one thing that solves all the problems. I don't believe the liturgy solves all the problems because you still got to live it out, right? You still got to be yep. a Christian. There's nothing that makes that easy. But what I can say is the early church has rituals and practices and services that you might find useful as you attempt to follow Jesus. And if you don't, I don't believe that God is sitting in heaven and saying, Look at Luke. They didn't even his church didn't even do a Good Friday service. They're not making it to glory. I don't believe that God is concerned with it. I'm saying it's helpful for some people. And if it's helpful for you, God bless you. If not, be at peace. You know, celebrate Christmas and in Easter and I'll see you in glory. <laughs> Amen. Amen to that. And also add Pastor Appreciation Sunday. Pastor that sounds like a great holiday. Yeah, yeah that's that that's good. Uh you know the church really likes uh especially low church, uh forty days of purpose. Yeah. Let's just go back a few years and get the early version yeah. of it. Let's just do that. And uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, and your book, Lent, which uh, is a great introduction. It's a great resource. So uh, congrats. Great book. And uh, well done. It's great talking with you again. And uh, write another book soon so we can do this again. Thank you. I have, I have one coming out um, in September. It's actually a memoir. Uh, and so you should invite me back. I'll, I'll talk to you what it's like about what it's like to write your Deal. own story down from beginning to end. It's not very easy to do. It's hard work. Hard okay. Well, I, I can't wait to, to read that, so we'll, uh, we'll do this I'll again. Send you, I'll send you an advanced reader, Luke. I promise. Well, I won't promise. I'll hope Let's you go. might forget. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you, brother. Right, That's I'll good. I'll see you later. Hey, right on.